Well, good morning, everyone. If we could go ahead and find our seats, please. Well, if you're uh, anticipating me leading worship, um, you're going to have to hold off on that one because that would not be a a pretty thing this morning. But we're going to start with uh, Scripture, and then uh, David's going to come up and lead us in uh, worship. So if you would, uh, open to um, Mark chapter 1. We're going to be reading the entirety of the chapter, um, but the first section here, I'm going to read the first uh, 20 verses, and then later I'll come back and we'll conclude that. So, If everyone could go ahead and stand, we'll start. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And as he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from the heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove uh, him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and the brothers of Simon casting a net into the sea, For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Maybe seated. Okay, if you would. uh... Go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to read the rest of uh, Mark. We're going to pick back up again in verse uh, 21 of chapter 1 of Mark, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And as they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were amazed, so so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. 
And he came and took her up by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought uh, to him all who were sick and oppressed by the demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him uh, searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus, sternly charging him, sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing that Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and it spread to the news. So Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but it was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. It's good to see some new faces as well this morning. Good to have you all with us. Uh, Before we jump into Mark chapter 1, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we've come to uh, the final Sunday of another year. And we thank you, Lord, for providing these 52 Lord's Days this calendar year of 2015. Father, we've uh, appreciated these times that we've been able to come together to, to worship you, to exalt your name, to praise you for who you are, to sit at your feet for instruction from your holy word. And Father, we thank you for teaching us and for making clear the truths that you would have us live by. Father, as we open your word this morning to to Mark chapter 1, I ask that you would once again illumine our hearts and our minds to grasp the height and the depth, the width of the text before us. Father, each one of these gospel writers were given an opportunity to write about Jesus, the Savior of our soul. And we thank you, Lord, for using these men to communicate to us the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would use these words uh, to change us, that you would stretch our thinking, that you would move our feet, you would lift our hands, you would help us see the myriad of needs all around us so that we, like your Son, might be servants always at work for the sake of your kingdom. And it's in the name of the suffering servant of whom Mark writes, this one we know is Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, back in the day, you'd pull up to the, what was called the filling station. Now, for you younger folks, a filling station is what we know today as a gas station. It used to be a filling station. used to be, that was the terminology, a filling station. You pull up to the filling station, and you used to have a choice. I don't know, maybe some stations uh, that you pull up to, they still provide the choice. But back in the day, you had a choice. You had a choice to go 
down the aisle that had the self-service. Or you could go down the aisle that had the full service. Then you could go to one or the other. Self-service meant that you were going to be the one responsible for putting the gasoline in your own vehicle. You were going to be the one responsible for washing the dirty windshield. You were going to be the one responsible for checking the fluids in your vehicle. You pull into the full-service side, and a bell might go off, alerting someone inside that they've pulled up to the full-service pump. And a worker would come out, and oftentimes this worker would come out and greet you, and, and perhaps I've uh, watched too many Andy Griffiths and, and, and saw too many uh, Gomer Pyle filler-up stations and seen the small-town feel of one coming out and making one feel welcome and talking and having conversation and there's relationship. And this person would come out and ask what you needed for your vehicle. And they'd get right to it. And you remained in your car and they served you. They filled up the gas tank. They washed your windshield. They checked the fluids in your car. They met your needs as best that they could. You see, these folks were full-service technicians. They were in the business of serving and meeting the needs of their customers. Now, if you were to apply the same terminology to describe the status of your own life as you sit here this morning, what would it be? Self-service or full-service? Over the course of this past year, you have, uh, as you think about your own life, maybe a question to consider this morning as we look at Mark chapter 1. Have you exhibited in your life more self-service traits or full-service traits? In other words, have you stewarded your time and your talents and your treasures more for self? Or have you looked for ways to serve others? I believe if given the time, each one of you here could put forward a name and a time, perhaps, a time when you were with someone who served self. It's sort of painful when you recognize it. And see, herein lies part of the problem. We oftentimes don't recognize it if it's us, but we are really good about recognizing it in other people. These people that spend what they have on self, they're concerned with the affairs of self. When they speak, the conversation always drifts to self. Their worlds seemingly are lived in isolation and they, they tend not to see the needs of others or perhaps they don't want to see the needs of others for that would mean then they might have to serve someone else. But I would imagine in a group this size we also, if given the time, you might be able to name someone. Someone might come quickly to mind that in your, in your mind is a full-service kind of person. They're always stewarding their time and their talents and their treasures to meet the needs of others around them. And perhaps you've been the recipient of their service on more than one occasion. It's a joy to be around these people, isn't it? 
These people are, 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 tend to be uh, the, the givers and not the takers. And they enjoy this. They exude love. They exude joy. There's a genuine sense of peace in their hearts about what they're doing. They're always looking for ways to bless someone else and show the love of Christ wherever they can. And when you come across such people, you are filled up. Just spending time in their company is filling, isn't it? You know some of those people. They're a blessing to be around. Well, we're looking today at the fourth and final gospel this Sunday. This gospel according to Mark. And the last three weeks we've covered John and Luke and Matthew, respectively. And what we're doing essentially in this series over these four weeks in December, the series title is Gospel Leads. And we're, we're looking at the lead chapters at each one of these gospels to see how the Lord, through His Holy Spirit, uses these men to put in place this gospel, this good news. And what we've seen to this point is that each one of the writers are speaking about the same who. They're all talking about Jesus. But what we're seeing is that they all are approaching this from a different angle, a different standpoint, a different emphasis. And today is no different. We saw a few weeks back that, that John is presenting Jesus as God. Christ in his deity is emphasized in John. We saw in Luke that he's writing this orderly account to show Jesus in his humanity. And then we saw last week Matthew describing this Jesus as the king, as the ruler, as the authority over all. Mark is writing to show a full service, Jesus. Jesus is one that we can look at and see that he served. His time here was spent serving, giving of himself, literally giving of himself. Unlike the filling station example, Mark doesn't present Jesus always waiting for people to come to him. In fact, we see it right here in chapter 1. He's seen in Mark's gospel as a servant on the move. A servant always at work. Always looking for ways to fill people up. Serving, in fact, to the very end of his life. Humbling himself, according to the book of Philippians, even to the point of death on a cross. Well, just before his triumphal entry in Mark's gospel... We see that Jesus was in the midst of a conversation with his disciples. And James and John, you might recall, they'd been asking of Jesus to sit at his right hand in his glory. Remember that? And they were wanting to sit with greatness. That's what they were wanting to do. They recognized Jesus as someone who was great. And they wanted to sit with him. And I believe that part of wanting to sit with Jesus is they wanted to also be deemed and seen as part of the greatness. They saw him in that light. They saw Jesus as great. In fact, the other disciples, the text says, were a little disgusted that they were having this conversation just off to the side. In another one of the Gospels, we see that uh, Zebedee's mother was also a part of this conversation. You can imagine 
how that conversation, how that interaction there in that moment might have gone. But Jesus uses, as he often does, he uses this moment as a teaching moment for the disciples. Look with me, if you will, turn the page to Mark chapter 10. And I'd like to read a few of the verses right there and pick it up right there in verse 42 of chapter 10. But Jesus called them to himself. Listen to what he says here. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. He says, and whoever of you desires to be first... Parents, this, ought to be a, this would be a good teaching principle in our homes. I think about this because I know we have small children... Inherently, it seems like a lot of small children want to be first to do this. They want to be first to do that. They want to be the first ones. Boy, this would be a great teaching principle here. Those who desire to be first shall be slave of all. And then Jesus says in verse 45, listen to what he says. For even the Son of Man... By the way, that's a reference that he usually refers to himself as here, the Son of Man. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, the great ones, according to Jesus, are not the ones lording it over others, but they're the ones serving others. So Jesus says, You want to be great? Take on the mantle of servant. You want to be first? Jesus says, how does bearing the name of slave to all sound? See, the disciples saw Jesus under this greatness umbrella... ...and they wanted to be found with him. Notice that he uses himself at the end of that passage I just read... He uses himself to help them understand what greatness is all about. It's as though he's saying, guys, I I want you to know that I came not to be served. Not to be placed up on some pedestal. I came to fully service those around me. And in fact, guys, I came to give my very life. That's why I came. I think it's important as we look at Mark's gospel. And we're going to do as we've done with the last three gospels. We're going to be taking a flyover view of chapter 1 predominantly. It's important for us to understand the writer of this gospel. As I was studying this week, I couldn't help but notice how fitting it was for God to use Mark in writing this gospel about this full service Jesus. I was thinking about Mark's connections, his his connections, and and we can go back to his connection with Barnabas, who the Bible says was his cousin, his connection with the Apostle Paul, his connection with Peter, whom Peter refers to in chapter 5 at the end of his first epistle, Mark my son, his spiritual son in the faith. He's connected with Barnabas. He's connected with Paul. He's connected with Peter. I was thinking about his background. 
From what we can see through the Acts account, it seems as though Mark is from Jerusalem. He leaves with, he's in Jerusalem in Acts 12. He's leaving with them in Acts 13. And he goes back and returns. Remember, he doesn't go the entire way in the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And he goes back to where? He goes back to Jerusalem. There's some clues in the text that tell us that's his background. That's where he's from. But we also see Mark's ministry in the scriptures. And this really was a significant piece. His ministry in the scriptures is that of an assistant. A servant. Someone who served others. He played an assistant role in the scriptures. We see that in his first missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. We see it also in the second missionary journey. Remember Paul and Barnabas, they split ways in the second missionary journey. And Barnabas took whom? He took Mark with him. We see it as he's ministered to Peter. But he also, I believe, ministered to Paul. And we see in Colossians chapter 4... Colossians 4, 10, and 11, right at the end of the letter, this letter that was written from prison, one of his prison epistles. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. He says, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So something happened between that second missionary journey when there was a big uh, to do over whether or not John Mark was going to go with Paul and Barnabas. Later we see Paul actually talking about how useful Mark was to him in the ministry. In fact, we see that in his last writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Only Luke is with me. Paul is at the end of the line and he's about to die. He says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And so we see that his connections and we see his background and we see his ministry focus was that of an an assistant. He served others in his life, Mark did. His life, it seems, is summed up well as that of an assistant, a servant. And he worked with the cousin. Listen, he worked with his cousin who was deemed the son of encouragement. Remember that? Barnabas. And he worked with the Apostle Paul. And he also spent a great deal of time around Peter. It seems that he possibly drew his content for this gospel. At least in part by way of Peter. So his three primary mentors or instructors in the faith. Barnabas, Paul... And Peter, not a bad group, huh? Not a bad group to learn from. You know what else I see in those three men? Service. Examples of Barnabas was always pouring out, coming alongside, serving other people. Paul, we see his whole life. We've covered him in his ministry journeys. He poured out himself, right? And Peter as well. All three of those men not only were great teachers and mentors, instructors of the faith, but all three of them would have been great pictures for Mark to see a servant, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, walking this out. The Jesus that Mark writes of is always at work. He's thinking of the interests of others. He's always inclined to give of himself on behalf of others. He's pictured as a full service. Jesus, 
And by the time you reach the end of the gospel, which, by the way, is the shortest of the four gospels, you see the ultimate expression of his full service, and that is the laying down of his life as a ransom for many. He laid down his life. And this is exactly the idea behind the well-known John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave. He gave his only begotten son. This son was sent to change the course and destiny of all men. He took on flesh and bones. He tabernacled among men for a time. Those who believe in God's son and receive him as Lord and Savior shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. Life, you see, comes through this full-service Jesus. That's how it comes about. He literally gave himself up at the cross. The Bible tells us in, in the various accounts that he's the one who breathed his last. He's the one who yielded up his spirit. No one took it. He laid it down. And he did this out of his rich storehouse of grace and mercy and love. Friends, as I look at the scripture and look at the gospels in particular, it seems to be that his greatest act of service comes at the cross. The full expression of that service comes at the cross where our sins are now forgiven. Our sins are paid for completely. He took our sins upon himself, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become, what? The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He showed his love toward us by serving. And his service was manifested and highlighted at the cross. In her overview of, of the scriptures, I was, I was intrigued by uh, the writer Henrietta Mears who, who wrote a, a, a book. It's been around for a long while, but what the Bible is all about. And essentially just uh, summarizes the books of the Bible. As it's talking about Mark, I was drawn to helping, helping us understand the difference between Mark and maybe some of the other Gospels. And says that Mark doesn't end with, as Matthew does. Remember, Matthew ends with the, the phrase, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And, but Mark doesn't end in that way because a servant has no authority. Mark doesn't have a genealogy like we found out last week with Matthew, right? Mark doesn't cover any of the birth narrative because a servant's line is insignificant. See, the, the whole approach to writing and thinking about Jesus as a servant. Mark doesn't open up with identifying Jesus as God, as John does. But instead shows how it is that Jesus is God through his life of servanthood and works. To someone who's looking for evidence of this man Jesus, a Jewish genealogy may not be helpful. That would be Matthew. Someone looking for evidence... Perhaps a doctrinal treatise on Jesus' connection with God the Father may land the wrong way. That would be John's gospel. For someone looking for evidence, a discipleship manual written by a doctor and a historian, an orderly account, that would be Luke, may be too detailed. But Mark's gospel is truly simplistic. It's weaved together with snapshots 
of a full-service Savior. That's who he is. And Mark is showing, showing the reader who this Jesus is. It's as though he's saying, here's what he did. Based on what he did, I'm setting forth then that he is God. No one else could do these things. So instead of just saying he was with God in the beginning, Mark shows how it is that Jesus is God. He's, he's found performing works that only God could do. And Mark allows, this is, this is also interesting as you read the gospel, Mark allows us a look and see, kind of a window into the response to what Jesus does. He allows us to be able to see the reaction and the response of people who see what Jesus is doing. You know, these words in the gospel like amazed, marveled, astonished. Those are reactions and they're scattered throughout the gospel of Mark. You see, because this Jesus was different and the difference was seen, the difference was recognized by all in his works. In fact, it's been said that there are some 20 miracles that are recorded by Mark. He's showing us, showing us, giving us accounts of what Jesus did. And by showing us, he is telling us who he is. In fact, he tells us that in part right up front in the first verse. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark tells us right out of the gate who he is. And then he spends, it seems, the rest of his gospel identifying and showing how this is so. So with all that in view, how does Mark begin his account of this Jesus? I think the first sentence, if we go back there, the first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This would be a very easy way for us to look at. We've been talking about what's the lead in this gospel. Uh, this is a great lead sentence. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I was thinking about the beginning, and, and it's the beginning, I think, in a few different ways. It's the beginning, if in fact Mark is the first gospel writer, which many seem to think he was the first gospel writer to speak of Jesus. There are four accounts of the gospels, and many seem to believe that Mark was the first one written. So it very well could be the beginning and that it was the first one out of the gate for the gospel writers to cover the news of Jesus. It's the beginning in the sense that Mark starts with John the Baptist's arrival and purpose for coming on the scene. And this, if you've read the other gospels, is consistent with, with Luke. It's consistent with John because Luke and John in their first chapters also speak of this man John, right? The, the precursor. The one who comes on the scene before Jesus. It's the beginning in the sense that it's the starting point in the life and ministry of Jesus. Beginning with his baptism and continuing through the cross and resurrection. But I believe it's also the beginning in the sense that Mark's account is written to affect lives. I believe the Spirit has moved Mark to write to begin telling the story of Jesus so that we too, the recipients, the listeners, would be moved to continue proclaiming this good news. So in a sense, Mark begins the work of proclaiming the gospel. 
Mark, the servant and ministry assistant, is writing of a full-service Jesus, showing us his life and ministry so that we too would be moved to keep on proclaiming this message and that we too might live lives of service, modeling before the world the one that we profess to serve. The beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Out of that first verse comes a question. How does Mark communicate the beginning of this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? How does he communicate it? And specifically, our task has been over these weeks to look at the lead chapter. We've been looking at chapter 1 predominantly. So how does he do that in chapter 1? I think he does it in two ways. The first of which is confirming testimony. Confirming testimony. He communicates the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by confirming testimony. Let me give you a few uh, examples of the confirming testimonies we see here in the first chapter. Right after the first verse, he jumps in in verses 2 and 3. You don't see a whole lot of this at all in Mark's gospel, and that is reference to the Old Testament. But right out of the gate, it's sort of like as a precursor to what he's going to be sharing He gives us a passage from Malachi chapter 3 and he gives us a passage from Isaiah. Speaking of whom? They're passages that are pointing to this one who was going to come to prepare the way for this Jesus. This was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was going to be coming. And so what we see, first of all, the confirming testimony, I think it's significant. And that is the word of God. Mark puts forward right out of the gate, the word of God as confirming testimony. Of, he's, remember, he's communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the gospel, and now he's communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ by confirming testimony. And the first testimony that is, is the scripture, the word of God. Friends, this is, a, this is one that we, we still need and ought and must use today. How do we communicate the truths of the scriptures if we, if we try to communicate the truths of the scriptures just by reasoning and we fail to use the truth of the word, he's given to us his word. We ought to use his word. And we see Mark here right out of the gate as he's communicating this gospel of Jesus Christ. He sets forth the word as testimony. Here's what the word says. As it is written, right? Matthew's good at saying that. As it is written. We see another confirming testimony. And that's John himself. In fact, we see in John's gospel, we see that Jesus talks about how John served as a witness, served as a testimony. But we see here in Mark, in verses 4 through 8, he speaks of John, how he came in the wilderness. And he gives his his purpose for coming. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We see that all the Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him. They were baptized by him, confessing their sins. Verse 6 gives us a picture of what John looked like. Sort of an unorthodox fella, right? Ate some food that perhaps we don't eat today. But gave us just a little snippet of of John, who he was. And then 7 and 8 gives us a little bit of his message. This is what he preached. There comes one after me who is mightier than I. I was reminded of those words in John Chapter 3, I believe it is, that he speaks of, I must become less, he must become greater. 
There's one, he says, that's coming after me who's mightier, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, there's confirming testimony right out of the gate of the word, the power of the word. The word has spoken that this is going to happen, that John is going to come. He's going to make straight the way of the Lord. There's confirming testimony coming from the lips of John himself about this one who was to come, who's mightier than he is. And he says, yes, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who is going to baptize you, the Holy Spirit. There's a third confirming testimony. And we see that in the event of the baptism of Jesus itself. And we see that coming up from the water in verse 10, he saw heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's confirming testimony here specifically from the Father. Confirming his love for his Son. Which points us right back to verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The who? The Son of God. The Father here in the baptism itself is declaring him to be his Son. We see the wilderness preparations in verses 12 and 13. It's further testimony. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. We have confirming testimony. One of the things I find interesting as I read Mark in the opening verses of Mark, we see the word of God at work. We see that, that John himself is at work testifying. We see that the father is testifying of his son. But we see the Holy Spirit also at work, don't we? It's as though Mark has given to us this, the, the triune God right out of the gate. He's talking about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and finds it hard, if not impossible, to speak about this Jesus without mentioning the confirming testimony of the Father and the Spirit at work. And scattered throughout the remainder of chapter 1, we have the confirming testimony found in the witnesses or the, the responses to Jesus. If if we read through chapter 1, you can't miss the responses to Jesus, which confirm his testimony, confirm who he is. And we just take some examples. Simon and Andrew, look at verse 16. He walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. What's the response? Verse 18. They immediately left their nets and followed him. We keep reading. Jesus goes a little further and he sees James and John, sons of Zebedee. They're in the boat. Look at verse 20. He calls them. What's the response? Immediately he called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. We keep reading. We see this man in the synagogue He enters the synagogue on the Sabbath and he's teaching. What's the response of the people to his teaching? They were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes, teachers of the law. We keep reading and we see this unclean spirit identifying who Jesus is. Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him. What's the response? 
when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. What's the response of the people to what they saw? They're asking, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What's the response? How does the response get trickled out from this event? The next verse tells us, verse 28, immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. And we keep reading. He goes to Peter's mother-in-law's home. And we see that Jesus is told about her fever. And he goes in. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up. What's her response? Not only does the fever leave her, but I love that little sentence that says, and she served them. I don't think that's insignificant that he includes that. And she served them. Because you see, here we have on the scene, Mark is describing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is a full service Savior. He is serving and he serves others that they too might get in the game, if you will, of serving, of living exactly the kind of life he himself lived. Walking as Christ himself walked. He takes care of her fever. And I love it that Mark says, and she served them. Well, the whole city of Capernaum in 33 and 34 gathers at the door there. The response to what they hear about Jesus, their response is, is believing that Jesus can actually take care of their need. They have needs and they are realizing as word is spreading who this Jesus is and what he can do. And they come. We see that the leper in verses 40 through 45, the response of the leper, as soon as Jesus had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him. He was cleansed. He was warned and sent away. You know, there are so many occasions, it seems, where Jesus heals someone and then he warns them not to speak up, tell anybody. And what do they do? They speak up and they tell everybody. Friends, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I would be probably inclined to be a lot like this leper. If, if I had been this way for some length of time and someone healed me of this disease, I'm almost certain that I would want to just tell everybody about it. And we see in the text his response. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter. Which essentially hurt Jesus from going into the city, it says. But I love the way he ends the chapter because the chapter ends with not Jesus closing down shop, with Jesus no longer serving others. No, the text says that the people then came to him from every direction. He's still serving. Confirming testimony. The word of God from John the Baptist, from the baptism event itself, where the Father declares him to be his son. From the time in the wilderness where the Spirit is ministering to him, where the angels are ministering to him. To the scattered responses to what Jesus is doing in chapter 1. These are all confirming testimonies. But we see a second thing, a second way as we look at, at how does Mark communicate the beginning of the gospel... I believe he does it through uh, the lens of continual service. Continual service. What did this continual service look like? And in chapter 1 in particular, what does it look like? I think what we see in chapter 1 is the preaching of the gospel. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. 
he says a little bit later, when they're coming to look for him, everyone's looking for you. Remember that? He goes away to pray. He says, everyone's looking for you. Simon says, and he says, let's go into the next towns. For It's for this purpose that I came forth. This purpose to preach the gospel. So preaching the gospel was one way of his continual service. Calling others to gospel living was another way of continual service that we see here in Mark chapter 1. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Teaching the gospel. We see that he enters into the synagogue and the Bible says that he began to do what? He began to teach. Okay? These are ways that Jesus is continually serving as Mark is recording them. There was another aspect that I I was drawn to as I was reading chapter 1. And that's the warfare of the gospel. I think is brought out right here in chapter 1. In verse 13, it's brought out when he's in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. It's brought out in chapter 1, verses 23 through 26, with the man with the unclean spirit who is speaking. Notice this unclean spirit identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I think if we take that idea and we take it down to the end of verse 34, it says there that he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. See, there's warfare going on right out of the gate in the ministry and life of Jesus. And Mark is showing that for us right here, right out of the gate. We see that another act of continual service, another way it gets displayed in Mark chapter 1, is through his compassion, the compassion of the gospel. And we see in verse 34, 33, when when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick, those who were demon-possessed, Remember what Jesus had been doing. He just, he, he, it's almost like Mark is giving us these quick snapshots of what he's doing. His ministry, his work. And loads of people are coming to him. They're bringing their sick. They're bringing those who were demon possessed. And you get the idea as you read chapter 1 that, that, that Jesus is not going, hey guys, I'm not now. That's that's not the Jesus we see here. Now, in just a moment, he's going to get away. But it's going to be getting away early in the morning before it's light outside. And he's going to be spending some time with his father. But we also see the compassion. It actually is laid out there in verse 41 with the leper. Jesus, verse 41, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. And then the last act that that I want to put forward in terms of his continual service is that of the uh, 135. We'll just call it the the filling station gospel, which is essentially where he filled himself up in prayer. Jesus takes and makes the time to get away, to be with the Father in the midst of all the activity, all the service. He gets away to be with the Father. So Jesus is found preaching. He's found calling others to full-time service, proclaiming and living out this gospel message. He's seen teaching in the synagogue and in the midst of spiritual warfare, wherever he goes. Remember, he's the light who has come into the world that is dark. And they're colliding. He takes time for people's needs and he does the unthinkable. He reaches out his hand to touch a leper. He's found in the midst of his fame spreading 
He's found spending time alone, praying to his father, receiving instructions, seeking his will, filling himself up on what the father has to say. John says this so well in his gospel on numerous occasions that he came to do the will of his father. So Mark communicates the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, by way of confirming testimony and examples of continual service. As you think about all of that, how do these things then intersect with your life, my life? How do you take Mark's gospel emphases here in the first chapter and put them into action in your life? Well, I think we can look at those two points that I covered earlier and we can go back to them. And we see that Mark records a large number of responses to Jesus in chapter 1 alone. And the question maybe that I'd like you to think about as it pertains to the text. Have you ever seen your response to Jesus as a confirming testimony of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Your own response. How you respond You see, some of us have been in Christ for a great length of time. And I don't know about you, but when someone first comes to know this Jesus, and first comes to understand what Jesus has done for them, and and the, the joy that just seems to overflow in them, Because of Jesus. I'd like to ask, is that joy that exudes in the life of a new believer in Christ, is it supposed to fade and wane and get to the point where, man, it looks like, looks a lot like the world? Why is it? How is it? that the joy that was once there has seemingly faded, drifted. I I read this gospel, I read Mark chapter 1, and and I'm thinking about the response to it. How does our life intersect with what Mark has given to us here, speaking about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Mark is communicating this beginning. He's showing you something in this gospel that you might put into action. That you too might respond as living examples of the gospel. Think back over this past year, friends. Who has come to know Jesus Christ as a result of your testimony and witness? How many souls have been affected by your own example of faith and works working together? You see, that's how it's supposed to happen. The faith and works working together. James chapter 2, if you turn there for just a moment, I'm not going to exposit the passage. simply want to bring it up for a connect point here. 
James asks the question here, can faith save him? What's it profit? Verse 14, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And James is asking whether or not one's profession of faith is sufficient to save him. And he answers that question with illustrations and with examples from the remainder of James 2. But he concludes with a verse that I would like to read in verse 26. He says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And I'd like you to think, and I'd like to bring your attention back to a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, Ezekiel and the dry bones. Ezekiel 37. Remember the picture. Pile of dry bones. The bones start connecting and sinews form and flesh takes shape and skin covers them. And they look like human beings, don't they? But they're still lying on the ground. They look like human beings, but they're lifeless. They're without the breath of life in them. It's not until Ezekiel is told by the Lord to prophesy to the breath that this former pile of bones rises up a mighty army. Friends, you are saved only by God's amazing grace through faith. The Bible tells us that in Ephesians 2. That is not of your own, Scripture says. It's a gift from God. But listen, if you are in Christ then you are considered what he calls his workmanship. Ephesians 2, verse 10. I didn't make that up, okay? That's what he calls us, your workmanship. A masterpiece, his, his story, his work of art. And you've been created for good works, which, listen, he prepared, and I don't even, I can't comprehend this. He prepared these good works in advance, And he prepared them in such a way that I should walk in them. That's what it says in Ephesians 2.10. He's prepared some good works which we are intended to walk in. The word walk oftentimes in the New Testament has in mind living. We're to live these out. We're to walk these out. We're saved by grace through faith. But we're saved in order that we might do good works. That we might be a confirming testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. That we might, with our lives, be full service. Just like our master. See, faith without works is dead. To be in Christ and not walk in the good works that he's ordained for you is hollow. It's empty. Listen, how will you ever exhibit a confirming testimony of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from your faith and works working together? In fact, if you choose not to walk in the works of the Lord that he has prepared for you, what ends up happening? The effect, right? The effect of such a life is a testimony that really profanes the name of Jesus Mark's final verse, I love his final verse, and some dispute the end of Mark. We're not going to get into that this morning. There's some that believe Mark's gospel ends at verse 8, that 9 through 20 is not in some of the, the better manuscripts and what have you. But all that being said, if we do look at the last verse of the gospel in verse 20, it's consistent, I believe, with 
what he's after as he's presenting this gospel of Jesus. Look, look at verse 20. And they went out. This is after he's been uh, received up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 20. Then they went out and preached everywhere. They went out and they preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. They went out and they preached everywhere. They were at work. Mark, Mark gives us a picture of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he shows us how Christ is at work. And he leaves us with that one verse. That's why I'm reading it to you in verse 20 of chapter 16. He leaves us with the one verse that shows us the very same theme of what he's trying to communicate in this entire gospel. And that is that we too, as his followers, ought to be about his work. And that's the way he leaves the gospel. They went out and they preached everywhere. Well, as we go back to the application and how do you take Mark's gospel emphases and put them into action, we see that the, that, that first example looking at confirming testimony in our own lives is significant. But there's one other aspect as we talked this morning and maybe asking you, yourself the question, have, have I seen my life as one of continual service unto the Lord? Not only is my life a confirming testimony of this gospel, but is my life one of continual service, preaching. Some of you in here go, I'm not a preacher. I'm not, I don't stand up behind a, po- a podium and preach. No. Last I heard, you don't need uh, letters behind your name in order to preach the good news message of Jesus. Preach. Preach the word. Teach. Closely connected. Is there a desire in you to pass along these truths that have so affected you? You see here, I'm convinced of this. If this word has affected you in a great way, you are going to be inclined to pass this along to someone else. If this is truly good news, you're going to be willing to tell somebody about this good news. Compassion. We saw it in Jesus. Do you tend to see people as distractions? Or do you see people as opportunities for service? Warfare, service unto the Lord means shining light in the darkness. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Talking about those who are following after him. We're the lights. We've got to understand something, friends. As light, we have been placed in a dark world. And he specifically says there in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's talking about not hiding that light under a bushel. Right? We sing that little song, Hide It Under a Bushel. There's a lot of truth to it. And the sad, sad reality is I think many do hide it. Many are afraid. Many are fearful. We must not. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must not be ashamed of Christ. For the Bible says that if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. Friends, I don't want to be on that side of, of the Lord being ashamed of me when the time comes for him to return. Understand that it's warfare. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Also understand as we think about your life as continual service, it ought to be made up of prayer. See, serving the Lord requires a continual retreat to the filling station. That you might receive daily instruction from the Father. 
God has provided his children with a whole set of armor. You can read about that armor in Ephesians chapter 6. And he's called us there to be praying always. Remember that your service unto the Lord is affected greatly by the time spent at the filling station. If Jesus took the time in the midst of his full-time service to stop and pray to his Father, how much more, friends, do we need to stop and refuel? You know, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded, because it's happened to me once, has anyone here ever run out of gas? A couple of you. Okay, good. Well, not good, but it's, it's comforting to know that some other people have also run out of gas. Yeah. At, at some point, if you don't take the time to pull over and gas up, your car isn't going to go anywhere. It's not. And spiritually speaking, I think the same is also true. Some of you have been serving the Lord for a long time, but that service has grown wearisome. It's grown tiring. It's grown somewhat cold. Could it be that you've been attempting to fuel up by means of the self-service pump, trying to make things better on your own? Mark's gospel is teaching us something critical to continual service in the name of the Lord. We have a full service Jesus who calls his followers to walk with him. He's poured out his Holy Spirit who empowers us for sure. But service for the Lord requires time spent with the Lord. Hearing from him, crying out to him, seeking him daily that we might know how best to serve him in the days that we have remaining here. You see, your life is intended to confirm the testimony of this gospel of Jesus Christ. And your example here on earth is intended to be one of continual service, bearing the name and likeness of Jesus Christ. As we bring this to a close, I'd like you to turn in your Bible to the book of Joshua. To the last chapter of Joshua. And a matter, of, a matter of summary, Joshua here is about to die. And he calls together the people of God at Shechem and sets before the people the wonderful works of God. Outlining from history of how God has been working on their behalf time and time again. He's been their protector. He's been their provider. He's been their guide. He's been their sure defense. He's been their strong tower and refuge. And after the rundown of God highlights, Joshua says these words in verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Joshua reminded the people of what God had done. When we read Mark's gospel, Mark in his gospel is putting on display all that Jesus has done. Joshua then calls the people to choose this day. There's a sense of urgency in Joshua. Mark's gospel is written in a very similar way. It's written in an urgent manner. That word immediately, at once. Those phrases are used 51 times in the New Testament, 41 times in Mark's 
gospel. There is a sense of immediacy, urgency in how Mark is communicating the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The servant is always at work. And we see at the end of that Joshua passage that Joshua takes up in verse 26 a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary. And he says, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. A new year is before us, friends. Starting today, December 27th, are you going to choose this day to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? To serve Him? To keep His Word? To walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? To work on this most important relationship? And for some of us, maybe we need to settle that. Because maybe there are some other relationships that right now in your life, are more significant, are more important. The people in Joshua's day chose to serve the Lord. And things sounded promising, didn't they? But if you take a quick, uh, just a, a, a turn the page, that's all you need to do. In my Bible, it's a turn of the page to Judges chapter 2. And you see that when all of Joshua's generation had died, verse 10 of chapter 2 says, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. One generation. That's all it took. It sounded so good out here, didn't it? The end of Joshua. We will serve the Lord. And we see in Judges 2, just a few verses later, there arose after Joshua's generation another generation who did not know the Lord nor the work which the Lord had done for Israel. Know that in choosing to serve Jesus, friends, you were called, just as Joshua called the people here in, in Joshua 24, you were called to forfeit the foreign gods that are among you. This is not saying yes to serve Jesus and still... Embracing all these other gods of the world. Joshua called them, to, they have to forfeit those things. The church at Hope in Christ is a witness this day of all those who desire in their hearts to serve this Jesus. And I got to thinking about this time next year. And I was asking the question and wondering, who's going to be walking with Jesus on December 27th? 2016. Who's going to be walking with Jesus? And you know, it's easy in a, in a message like this to, uh, to, to just call out and say, hey, if, if this is something you're going to commit to, if you're going to serve Jesus, um, by golly, everybody just stand up. No, I'm not going to do that. But instead, I would like to impress upon you what the scriptures have said would like to think that we here as a body would serve as witnesses one to another over the coming year of what it is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What it is to think about full service as opposed to self-serving. 
to think about what my Lord and Savior did when he laid down his life at the cross. He gave himself up willingly for me and for you. When we think about those things, friends, it changes our perspective. It ought to change our perspective. Five to ten years down the road, many of you young people are going to have families of your own. You're going to be out of the house. You're going to be making your own decisions. Are you going to choose to serve Jesus and see that your families know this Jesus? When it comes time for dad and mom to be gone, will this next generation be concerned at all with holding up the name of Jesus Christ? You see, this full-service Jesus was willing to give even his life for you. And the question then, as we conclude, will you then choose this day to fully serve Jesus? Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer that each one here hears these words that each one would become fully devoted to serving you. Father, I pray that you would rescue the lost. That you would rescue those who are pretending. Father, if there are pretenders here in this place, I pray, Lord, that you would expose them by your word. Pray that you would remind us daily of our need for you. Father, I pray that our daily communion with you is reflective of our daily need. We would understand how needy we are every day and we would be willing to come and pull up to the the full service station. Father, your Bible says that we now have access through faith. When you died and that temple curtain tore in two... Father, you granted to us, your children, full-time access into your presence. Oh, Father, we're thankful for that. I pray that we would return again and again to be filled in your presence. And as we minister to others in the name of Jesus, may we do so fully aware of all he did for us at the cross. Help us to see people through the lens of compassion and not as a distraction. Pray that you would make us and shape us, O Lord, to be the confirming testimonies that you desire for us to be. And pray that our lives would exhibit continual service in your name until you return to take us home. We pray this in the name of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Pray in his name. Amen.